Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier this week, President Biden announced that the U.S. would use yet another powerful economic tool against Russia, a ban on the importation of Russian oil, gas, and coal. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. It's the latest move from Biden and his allies to economically isolate Russia in the weeks since the country's invasion of Ukraine. But the move to ban Russian oil and gas, it has consequences, both for Americans at gas pumps and for Biden politically as he tries to manage fallout from those rising costs. Since Putin began his military buildup on Ukrainian borders, just since then, the price of the gas at the pump in America went up 75 cents. And with this action, it's going to go up further. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. This is where things get really tricky, though. See, Biden came into office pledging to move America's climate reforms forward. But how can he ensure that the U.S. has enough oil supply to keep prices from surging even higher and also ensure that our efforts to find more oil don't infringe on those climate promises? What kinds of problems could this ban cause for Biden down the road? And will any of this actually help Ukraine? This is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. After Russia invaded Ukraine, Biden and the United States' allies in NATO countries and beyond announced a broad set of sanctions barring Russians from participating in large swaths of the global economy. Annie Linsky is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. Sanctions on financial institutions, sanctions on individuals who are close with Putin. It was really one of the swiftest and broadest international actions against a particular leader and country that has been done. They were tough, but they included one significant carve-out, and that was for the Russian oil industry. The reason for the carve-out is an interesting one, and you have to know a little bit about the oil industry. But essentially, oil is a global commodity. So when there is a global shortage, the prices go up. And the idea that the Biden administration was initially articulating was that they didn't want to ban Russian oil, which would have the impact of increasing the price of oil, which could therefore provide Putin more money. Europe in particular is very dependent on Russian oil, and it's quite difficult for them to say no to it. And the United States did not want to be acting on its own. We're moving forward with this ban, understanding that many of our European allies and partners may not be in a position to join us. The United States produces far more oil domestically than all of European, all the European countries combined. In fact, we're a net exporter of energy. So we can take this step when others cannot. 
but we're working closely with Europe and our partners to develop a long-term strategy to reduce their dependence on Russian energy as well. The Biden administration strategy here has been for this to be a broad-based, multilateral move against Russia, and the notion of the United States going on its own is not something he wanted to project. But the United States did decide to ban Russian oil. There was sort of a bipartisan clamor for that move. Where has that bipartisan clamor come from? What's shifted that we actually see Democrats and Republicans agree on this move to ban oil and gas imports from Russia? There are two reasons that the dynamics have shifted when you think about Russian oil. One is a sort of international dynamic and one is a domestic one. And so if you look internationally, the world and the Biden administration believed that Putin would take Ukraine in 72 hours. And that's not what happened. And it has caused the United States and U.S. politicians to say, look, what more could we be doing to help the Ukrainians? And banning Russian oil is another piece, and it's a tougher sanction. Both Democrats and Republicans on the Hill were also hearing from Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, in these emotional phone calls, has been pleading with them to take this step. And Zelensky has emerged a little bit as an international hero in the eyes of many lawmakers because of the way that he has been sort of taunting Putin for, for his ability to persist. So I think that is a little bit why the dynamics changed. And Congress was on the cusp of passing legislation that would have barred Russian oil. So I think Biden wanted to get ahead of that as well. Have we seen the administration doing anything to mitigate what they foresee as potential negative consequences for Americans at home? Not yet. I mean, there have been some things that the administration has done You know, previous to this move. There was a big release from this petroleum reserve. You've seen the administration reaching out to a series of regimes that the United States has very tense relations with, Venezuela, reaching out to the Saudis, to the Arab Emirates, looking for ways to produce more oil. That's a big deal. The idea of changing relations in Venezuela comes with its own political problems for the president, but he has been willing to take on some risk there in an effort to keep prices down. There's a lot of talk of different policies that Biden could pursue, one of them being a gas tax holiday. The federal gas tax is under 20 cents, so it's still, even if you took that off, you're still going to have quite high prices at the pump. Um, you might want to reserve that for when they get closer to $5 a gallon as an average across the country. Um, you could also send out stimulus checks. There are some economists who the White House listens to who have proposed that idea, but so far I have not heard from White House sources that that's something that they want to do. So there are things that they could do, but so far, I mean, new legislation and new stimulus or a tax holiday has not been proposed by the White House. We've talked about sort of the impacts here at home. What impact will this decision that seemed to be agreed upon by large swaths of the U.S. government, what impact will it actually have on Putin's decision to continue fighting this war in Ukraine? That's a really good question. I think some of it has to do with there are just a lot of unknowns. I mean, the immediate impact is not enormous. It very well could continue to drive up prices and it could provide Putin more money if oil costs more. But what the president has been doing is trying to go around the world, increasing supply to make it easier for others to join in in our ban. And if he is successful in that regard, the Russians could end up having to sell their oil in a much smaller marketplace. Just the United States acting alone doesn't have an enormous impact, but it's sort of the direction that we are pushing the world to go in that I think could have a much more significant outcome. 
Last question for you. Do you have a sense from your reporting what's left in Biden's toolkit, what's left in his arsenal for things that he might try after he's now put this ban in place if Putin continues to not back down? So I don't think there's a, a, a strong belief that Ukraine can stand forever on its own. And the president has been very clear that the United States is not going to intervene militarily. That said, I think that you're then looking at a next phase of containing Putin. Does he also take Moldova, another country that borders Ukraine and is not in NATO? And then what does a resistance force look like within Ukraine? I think that the idea that the United States can do something that is going to prevent Ukraine from eventually being occupied is not sort of in the cards. I think it's the idea is making it as painful as possible. All right, Annie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We'll be right back with a look at what Biden's decision to ban Russian oil and gas means for his climate efforts. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Reporter Annie Linsky laid out some of the factors contributing to Biden's decision-making around banning Russian oil imports. But there was one thing that she mentioned that stuck with me that I wanted to better understand. And that's the tension Biden faces now between his ambitious climate agenda and his immediate need for fossil fuels to keep the economy in good shape. So for more on that, I turn to Washington Post climate reporter Steve Mufson. I think actually it's interesting to see the Republican Democratic positions on the ban on Russian oil imports. The Republicans say, let's ban Russian oil imports, but we, they want to do it while making a case for more drilling. Whereas Democrats say, let's ban Russian oil imports, but the reason we're doing it is because we have to move faster to expand renewables and to expand the sales of electric vehicles by the big automakers and make that part of a, a package going forward. So basically, the the Republicans are sort of arguing that this is a moment to ease environmental regulations, to make it easier for these fossil fuel companies to operate, to drill. And yet the Democrats are saying, it's actually, this is <laughs> right. This is their moment to decrease our dependence on foreign oil and speed up some of Biden's climate goals. And the biggest users of oil are automobiles. One out of every 11 barrels produced in the entire world goes into the tank of an American automobile. So changing that means creating a lot more electric vehicles. But that takes an enormous amount of time. We sell about 16, 17 million automobiles every year. And what, maybe a million at most, slightly more than a million are electric vehicles. So we have a long way to go before we can really make an impact. So then some of these policies that Democrats are advocating for, like subsidies, tax credits for electric vehicles, those are steps to prevent this sort of oil supply shock in the future. But really, we're not even close yet to these policies making an impact now in the short term. In the short term, we need a plan for how to compensate for the oil we won't be getting from Russia. So to that point, how much does the U.S. even depend on Russia for that oil supply now? 
Well, Russia plays a, a huge part in global energy production, and Russia is the biggest exporting, oil exporting country in the world, and that gives it a lot of power in the marketplace. Could the U.S. live without Russian oil and gas imports, or is this something that we'll, we'll need to change? In the long term, we can live without Russian imports, but the long term could be a long and painful time. Right now, Russia's exporting about 7.5 million barrels a day, and if you look at where you might turn to try to persuade other countries to ramp up their production to compensate for that, that's just not possible. And so we're going to have a lot of pain, what analysts like to call demand destruction, in which you and I say is kind of a recession and an economic slowdown. And I think that's what we're going to see roll out these next few months. When you say that the administration might try to persuade other countries to ramp up oil production in order to compensate for our losses from Russia, what might that look like? I think we'll see a scramble by the administration to try to get other countries to increase their oil production. We can see that right now where the, the administration sent a delegation to Venezuela to try to persuade Venezuela to let American companies in with their technology and increase Venezuelan oil production. And this is kind of a shocking thing because we have sanctions on Venezuela already, not that unlike the kind of sanctions on Russia, only it's had a much bigger effect in Venezuela. Why did we have those sanctions on Venezuela? Because of certain actions that the government there has taken, government run really by kind of uh, autocratic leaders. And the things that we wanted to get from those sanctions from Venezuela haven't really happened. But now we have a different sort of set of priorities. The Venezuelans probably need at least months to make maybe a half million barrel a day increase in its oil supplies, half million barrels a day. Remember, when we were talking about uh, Russia, we were talking about seven and a half million barrels a day of exports. But I think for now, the administration is going to be trying to gin up more production, makes it look like it's doing something. Maybe they actually do a little bit of something and try to keep these prices from going even further through the roof. It's just so interesting from a foreign policy perspective to see the administration say, OK, we're going to choose the lesser of two evils and have these conversations with Venezuela, even though they haven't come through on their end of this sort of sanctions agreement, as they use sanctions as the biggest threat they have against Russia. I assume Putin's watching that relationship with Venezuela and, and perhaps can draw his conclusions about, about his need to hold up his end of the deal. Well, and really, the politics make any effort to increase production very awkward. He doesn't really want to go hat in hand to the Saudis. He doesn't really want to. And then they, they're trying to hold the line on the negotiations with Iran. So in a way, you could say that Russia, one of our adversaries, has delivered us into the hands of other adversaries um, in an effort to try to come to some sort of market balance that we can live with here in the States while trying to work out these terrible problems in Ukraine. All right, Steve, thank you so much for unpacking all of this. No problem. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Sharla Freeland with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. 
In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now.